All right, I've asked you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to read to you just the first four verses of Romans chapter 1. And here is what we read. Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Last week in our message, we pointed out that Paul gave three ways, when he was coming to the Romans, three ways in which he viewed himself, in which he wanted them to understand his self-conception as he came among them to minister to them. Remember, Paul has not been to Rome, but he wants to visit the church in Rome. And the first thing he tells them is that he is a servant, or the word here is really a slave of Jesus Christ. He's presenting himself to them in such a way that they might know that he does not come among them seeking to own them in any way to own them by his persuasion or by the influence of his personality, but he comes among them as someone who is fully owned by another. And so he comes not in his own authority, but in the authority of the one who enslaves him or is the master over his life. It's a humble view of himself. He is, at best, projecting himself as equal with them because in various writings in the New Testament, the believer is referred to as a servant or slave of Jesus Christ as well. All of us are. We are, in a sense, slaves brought out of the slavery that held us in bondage to sin and judgment and were won by the free grace of Jesus Christ. That grace has captivated us. and We are, by God's grace, bound to him, bound to Jesus Christ. And so it's a sign and a statement that Paul's making that he is equal to those who he's coming among. But even so, it may be even a deeper expression of humility than that. Paul actually writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4.1 that the people in the church in Corinth are to view him and those who are working alongside of him to advance the gospel among them as servants of Christ. And there the word he uses is under rowers of Christ. It's a word for the lowest form of slavery. It's the slave that was put into the lowest part of a ship at the bottom point of a ship to row and propel a ship. It was a, a hard and difficult task and one that you labored in the hole until you literally died. Paul says, consider us under rowers. He takes the lowest place of servanthood among the people. The next thing Paul says about himself is he wants them to know that he's called to be an apostle. He was sent and he was commissioned by the sovereign hand of God to the position he holds among them. He didn't promote himself to this position that he was taking among them, but that he had been directed by the events of his life as God singled him out to the work of preaching the gospel of Christ and building his church among the Gentiles. So as such, Paul is appealing to the authority that is his by the ruling and the overruling and the directing of God in his life. And we can take two things from this in our lives. When we live conceiving ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ, as only responding in obedience to Christ's will and Christ's direction over our lives. And if we would see ourselves as individuals who sovereignly are led to and brought to the places of ministry and impact, engagement in the world in which we live, there is a profound authority that rests upon us in any given moment. It's not something that we've brought to ourselves. It's not some exercise of our own willpower and our own force. But we're in every situation, in every engagement under the ownership of Jesus Christ and guided by His sovereign hand. It turns every circumstance 
into our favor and it grants us a unique power and authority as we go into those places. It's a power that comes to us as we humble ourselves before this orchestration of God over our lives and as we humble ourselves to his complete ownership of our lives, out of that rises a profound authority. The last thing that Paul says is that he's been set apart or that he's been singled out to a singular focus for the advance of the gospel of God, he says. It's this phrase, the gospel of God, that is the whole theme of the book of Romans. Paul is going to unfold its message and its teaching through the, the letter that he writes. And it's going to be our joy, I trust, to ascend into the great mountain heights of this glorious message of the gospel of God over a number of months that are ahead of us. We'll enjoy that and we'll anticipate that. I'm anticipating that. Have you ever gone on a hike, maybe a great adventurous hike? I remember as a young pastor I took on a couple different occasions during the summer, particularly young men in our church, and we'd go into these remote wilderness areas in British Columbia, and we'd take these hikes up into the mountains. And of course, the, oftentimes, you, before you begin, you're standing at a plane, and you're looking at what it is you're to ascend into, and it's before you, and you take it all in. And it's awe-inspiring. It's, it's wonderful. The scope, uh, the panorama of all that's before you, and you also anticipate going into that place, and then over the next few days, as you go on that adventure, you, you see all kinds of wonderful things, all kinds of beautiful things as you make your way up into the mountains where you've gazed and you've looked before you begin to ascend that place. But maybe nothing that you see during that whole journey is as breathtaking or as spectacular as that initial view as you take in what it is that you're about ready to undergo and undertake in that journey. Another idea might be that you're standing on the Grand Canyon. This beautiful, gargantuan, beauteous, glorious miracle of God in creation. And you take it all in, and then after having gazed at it, you descend down into the canyon, and there you explore its walls, and you explore how it was formed, and you go and you walk through, and you explore the river that comes through it, and the streams that trickle down along its walls, and it's all wonderful, it's all beautiful, and you see all kinds of foliage and all kinds of animals. It's a great experience, but likely... Nothing was so awesome as that initial view when you looked at the whole of it before you descended into your march and your walk into that beautiful canyon land. Well, in the same way, we are standing at the threshold of the great truth of the Christian's gospel, our good news. And we're going to explore over the next while the wonderful benefits and the richness and the profundities that are found within this gospel that God has given to us and that we're to glory in. But Paul here, in a moment, in just a quick phrase, allows us to take in an awesome, expansive, initial view of what it is that we're going to be looking at. He simply calls it the gospel of God, and that is as broad and as wide an image or portrait or picture that he can give us of what it is we are going to consider, and that's what I want to look at you this morning. I just want to consider this phrase, the gospel of God. But first, here's a couple of clarifications. The word gospel is a word designating news or information or a message that's to be received and understood and that when it is, it bears an impact upon our lives when we receive it. In fact, the impact is set forward in the very word. The impact of receiving this information, this news, is all good. It's good news. It impacts us with the cause as a cause of delight in those who take it in and receive it 
And once you realize what is behind the news that you're receiving, it's the cause of rejoicing and gladness. What are the words of the angels when they were announcing the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news. Gospel is the word of great joy which shall be to all people. Paul tells us the reason that the news is good to us in Ephesians, he calls it there the good news or the gospel of your salvation. The Greek meaning good news is the noun ungelion. The Greek verb for proclaiming that good news, that ungelion is ungelizo. And the individual who proclaims that good news is an ungelios. In fact, you can read sentences where you have the one proclaiming the euangelios, proclaiming the good news, the euangelizo, proclaiming the good news, the euangelion. They're there, good news, good news, good news throughout the sentence. It's great news. It's good news. It's the Greek word from which we get the word evangelical or evangelist. We are the people of the good news. There's a wonderful etymology behind the word as well. It's an expression of the reaction. It's measured by the reaction that takes place in the person who receives this good news. Now, listen, there was a moment when you all were received with great joy. The day that you were born, there was a flash of joy. Maybe it was joy that the pain of birth had ended. That was part of it. But it was also that you had arrived, and now the pain of raising you had just begun. But it was received as good news. Was rejoicing in it. That's a bit of the idea of what the word euangelion means, good news means. It's portrayed not simply in compacted in the idea of information that lies within it, but the emotional response that comes to you when you receive it. The etymology comes from the image of a messenger that rushes into a city and proclaims good news. And the idea behind it is that an army, an advancing army, is coming upon a city-state and they're seeking to overwhelm that city and take captive all those in the city and, and slay all those who are not of use to them and take into bondage and slavery all those that they can take away to themselves. The city sends out its own army to advance against the opposing army and a war takes place and a battle takes place away from the city and then when the battle is won by those who are guarding the city, they send a runner back into that city to tell those in the city the good news and that runner is called, he is the Evangelios. He's the one who's coming back with the Evangelizo, the, the good news, and he proclaims that good news, the Evangelion, the word or the message, which is, you've been saved. A battle has been fought on your behalf, and it's been won, and you've been rescued from certain death and bondage and slavery. Now, in your mind, you have to think, what would be the reaction to the individuals who hear that news? What has been their state of mind Prior to that moment, they've been in tremendous distress. They've been overwhelmed with profound worry. Their, their whole lives and their future are in complete jeopardy. All that they've known, all that they've held dear. and Then a message comes back to them that they've been saved and they've been rescued and they've been delivered and the future opens up before them. And the hearing of that is an emotional response it's an outpouring of joy and rejoicing. That's how you gauge whether a person understands our gospel. You gauge it by the way they react to it. There are things that are told to us, sometimes in churches, it's cased to us as good news, and it's not. And I'll tell you why, because 
When you hear it, it doesn't make you happy. It doesn't fill you with that kind of joy. You know, just do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Follow the golden rule. Good news? Not necessarily. Not like this, right? Just try a little harder. Hey, good news, you get a second chance and a third chance. Good news, if you die, you get to go to purgatory and work it all out. Good news? Not necessarily. Not in this way. No, the gospel is measured by the reaction we have when we hear not a bunch of moralisms, not an ethical path to follow in, but a message that a battle has been fought on our behalf and it's been won and we're, we're delivered from death and slavery and bondage. If you don't have that kind of experience when you hear it, either you're not hearing the good news because what's being told you is not the gospel or you're not understanding the good news that's being told to you. You're not comprehending it. You meet a person who the Spirit of God has opened their hearts and their minds and their eyes to understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you will know that they have grasped it, that they understand it by this kind of reaction. By overwhelming joy and gratitude and gladness and rejoicing and the shock of appreciation and joy that floods over their souls at that moment is a demonstration that they have understood and received and embraced this great truth, this ecstatically good news that's been given to us. So keep that in mind. Have that in the background as we consider, in a sense, the breadth of this gospel, first and foremost, as we step back at the very beginning of this series, and we just look at the panorama, the panoramic beauty and the broadness and the breadth of this gospel found in this one declaration that Paul makes when he says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. There's the gospel in its broadest scope for us to look at. Let's consider three things. And the first thing is this. It means that this message of good news has been planned and presented or promised by God himself. Paul writes, the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in Holy Scripture. This is not a concoction of human beings. This is not what human beings oftentimes call good news. There's the political class who, when the world is falling apart, try to find some good news out of all the situations that we're in, oftentimes under their leadership, to find some silver lining for us that they can get up, and then they get the people to promote them and to promote their decisions before us, and to try to just point out all of the good news. The world can be falling all around us, but hey, good news, we've reduced the deficit, and we're all, well, yay, you know, Ronald Reagan used to tell a little bit of a story. He told the joke of a little boy that was brought to a barn and the barn was full of manure and the, the young boy grabbed hold of a shovel and said, oh boy, and he began to dig into the manure and the, uh, you know, the father asked him, what are you so excited about digging into the manure? He goes, I know there's just got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> That's the model of the political class oftentimes. They just give us a pile of manure and tell us that they might be able to pull out a pony from it if we if we try real hard. But that's not what we're facing here. This is not wishful thinking. This is not peptic optimism. This is not trying to put a good twist. This is not trying to find a silver lining for us. This is the good news of God that originates with God himself. It's God's plan working out our salvation. It's seen from the very beginning of the story of Scripture the evidence is laid out that God is working and God is planning all along to deliver us. Yes, the, the story begins with 
Adam and Eve falling in sin because of their choice and their rebellion. And yes, their act moved all of creation and us into a fallen world where sin is not only a possibility but a bleak reality. And its destructive force is not just a theory, but it's a ravaging, unleashed disease. And yet in that very hour, God began to announce plans for good news. A lamb was slain to clothe their nakedness. A promise was given to a woman that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God began after this systematically to unfold and make known and communicate through his messengers, the prophets, this good news that he could be trusted with as he was unfolding and working our great salvation. The first two-thirds of this Bible is introducing us to and leading us into this good news It means that what God has planned and what God was promising is culminated in promise. And Paul is delighted to make it known to us. So here, just keep in mind, this is not a human invention. It's not man trying to reason his way out of a bad situation. It's not an attempt to somehow put ourselves in a better state of mind. We're not whistling in the dark here. It's the declaration of something that has not been one or formulated by human reasoning, but something that's been formulated by God and the battle that has been won on our behalf by God himself. He's the author of this good news of our salvation. It's, it's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. Everything we're going to read about, it's God's gospel. Here's the second thing. It means that God is the one who has brought this good news about. God is the one who has accomplished this thing. This is God's work. This is God's accomplishment. Here's what we read again. Speaking of the good news of God, which he promised before through his prophets and holy scripture, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to flesh and declared to be or assigned to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And Paul here is describing, in a sense, the gospel. And what Paul does in describing the gospel of God, he reaches out into the wonder of this story, of this account of the gospel, to connect it to the triune God, to connect all of it to the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons, crafting and molding and planning and fulfilling and answering the need that we have in the salvation we have, working and accomplishing the salvation for us. The Father promises it. The Father plans it. The Father reveals it through the prophets. The Father begins to fulfill it by sending the Son through a woman named Mary, who is a descendant of David, because God had promised that the Messiah would come, and God had revealed that the Messiah would come through the line of David. And yet the Son coming... And the gospel being all about him, he says, centered in the person and work of the Son, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all centered in him. He is the eternal Son of God. He came in the flesh to accomplish in himself our salvation and to culminate the promised plan of God's good news. It's planned and promised by the Father. It's centered in the life and work of the Son, and and it's demonstrated to have been fulfilled and answered in power through the resurrection, a resurrection that is brought about by the spirit of holiness. There you have it. You have God demonstrating his work and his labor 
in appointing his son and centering the gospel in his son and sending his Holy Spirit to powerfully raise up his son from the dead as a way of, in a sense, announcing or declaring that this indeed is God's salvation. The triune God's engagement is all over our salvation. Uh, this is not God the Father independently seeking to do us a good turn. God working independently. There are individuals who want to believe in a God who has good news for them, but want to rule out the atoning work of the Son coming and dying for our sins. And that's not good news. The good news involves all of them, all three of them. This is not the Lord Jesus coming and standing in the gap before a vengeful and wrathful God and trying to talk him out of our destruction. Oh, this is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together, all gathering together to accomplish, to engage the need of our salvation and to accomplish it. And it's all being worked out. If you think about this, this is throughout the story. If you read the Gospels, you see again and again the picture of the triune God at work in our salvation. When the Lord Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he comes upon the scene and he steps forward into baptism, demonstrating his willingness to identify with our need to have our sins dealt with and washed away and cleansed. And so he steps into the water of our baptism. It was a baptism for the repentance of sins. And Jesus had no sin to repent of, but to fulfill all righteousness, he steps in and says, I will identify with them in their need. And here is the son declaring the purpose of his mission, stepping forward into baptism. And then as he's baptized, as we're told that as he's coming out of the water, that the, the clouds break open and the spirit comes down upon the son like a dove. And then out of heaven, the father speaks saying, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased and from the very beginning and the outset, God was revealing that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were engaged and involved in the work to bring us salvation. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read to you the last two verses in Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 27 and 28. It's a great little passage of scripture it's like a four-point sermon outline a very easy point sermon outline it's the things that you can be certain of assure of it says here as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment so christ was offered once to bear the sins of many and to those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation and there you have four things you can be sure of first two things are rather uh, frightening things, kind of bad news here. It says first that we're all going to die. We're all going to die. You can be certain of it. We're all going to die. Here's another thing you'd be certain of. Once you die, you have to go before the judge. You have to give an answer for the deeds done in the flesh, and there's judgment facing us. You stop just at those two points of information, and if you start to honestly evaluate your life, there's great concern here. There's much to answer for. But there's two more things, two more things that are wonderful things, that are gracious things, two more things that we can be certain of. Christ was offered once for all to bear the sins of many. Christ has died for our sins. His death for our sins has absorbed the judgment we deserve. And as a result, he's coming again for those who've put their faith in him and embrace that good news, not to deal with our sins, but in order to bring us into the fullness of his everlasting salvation. That's, that's, that's good news. It's really good news. You grasp that, and that'll make for not only a good day, but a really happy life, embracing that news. But now take your Bibles and go up a little bit further. Go up to verse 14. 
of chapter 9. And in verse 14, you have, in a sense, a setup for this end of the chapter and the message that's being proclaimed. Here, the author of Hebrews is arguing that the, the sacrificial system wasn't sufficient to provide for our salvation, but it was just a means by which we had projected out to us the hope of salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. And he describes the salvation in verse 14 this way. He says here, How much more shall the blood of Christ, that's the Son, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, there's the Spirit, without spot to God, to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's blood was offered through the Spirit to the Father in order that we might have redemption and forgiveness of our sins. There again is the gospel of God. It's the triune, mysterious work of God for salvation. And we're going to look at this in more depth in the days ahead. We won't linger here too long, but we should know this already. Most of us who have grown up in Christian homes were taught the first Bible verse, John 3.16. For Jesus so loved the world. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's, it's God's gospel. It's God's good news. It's God's work. It's what God has accomplished for us. Here's a third thing I want you to see here. It's good news. It's the good news of God because it's good news to God. It's the good news of God because it's good news to God. It's good news to God because He has accomplished a way of our salvation that glorifies and exalts all that He is. God is glorified by what is in keeping with all that God is. And God has crafted a salvation for us that satisfies himself. It satisfies his justice against sin. It satisfies his righteous requirements for fellowship with him. In order to commune and fellowship with God, he, we must be righteous and be made righteous ourselves. It satisfies his holy standard. It allows us who were sinners to be brought into his holiness and be made holy as he is holy. And so it satisfies God's holiness as well. It's it satisfies his love for us who are lost and separated from himself. It satisfies his mercy for the weak. It's not a mercy that has compromised anything else in God. It's not a mercy that called for God to compromise his perfect justice or his perfect righteousness or his perfect and utter holiness. It's a loving salvation that God has provided that bears all the marks of all that God is. It lays in full force his supreme and profound hatred against wickedness and evil and sin. It lays in full force his just wrath against all things contrary to him. And yet with all of this, it still gives expression to his deep and profound love and mercy and deliverance for those that he sets his love upon. What I'm saying is the gospel of God is good news to God. It's glad news to God for it's born out of all that God is. God is not compromised in any attribute by a salvation. Instead, all of his attributes are wonderfully highlighted in that salvation. And that makes it good. That makes it good. There's another reason why it's good news to God. 
It's good news to God because it's good news for us. And it's good news for His creation. The only true good that we can know are those things that come to us as good and perfect gifts from God. And only when God is ultimately glorified in all things can we realize what satisfies us in all our lives. So God finds a way so that the good news, the glad and good news, and a cause of great rejoicing might come upon us and deliver us. Something that will reflect all that He is, exposing and bringing us into all of that goodness so that He might save us and deliver us to Himself. So it's good. It's good for Him because it glorifies Him. It's good for me because it glorifies Him. It's the thing that brings ultimate blessing to us. God rejoices in the gospel because it's good. His glory is good for you and I. In Luke chapter 15, which we had as our scripture reading, the Lord Jesus uses three different parables to express God's great interest in our salvation and delight in our salvation. There, the Lord Jesus points out that all heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. I'll just let you know, in heaven... The angels gather around the throne of God. We're told in Isaiah 6 that they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. In other words, their job is to speak in reverent awe of what it is that is before their eyes. And so they're simply with words and with their oaths mirroring the glory that's before them. They're responsibly declaring to all the earth what they see upon the face of God. Your holiness, your holiness, your holiness. And so when the Bible says all heaven rejoice over one sinner repents, it means that God is rejoicing over one sinner that repents. God is delighted over the salvation of one repenting sinner. And so all of the angels of heaven are manifesting and radiating the joy of the Father, the joy of the Son, the joy of the Spirit in our salvation. That's the point of those parables. In fact, there is a triune formula there as well. The first parable is the parable of a shepherd who goes and rescues his sheep. And the Lord Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. And so you have the son rejoicing over the deliverance of the salvation of one individual who repents. The next parable is the parable of a woman who is sweeping her house for a lost coin. And the coin is actually not that valuable, but women in those days used to put together coins that as a headband on their heads to demonstrate their marriage vows. So she's looking, it's like if you had lost your wedding ring and you were sweeping the house for your wedding ring or your diamond had fallen out and you were looking for it. In this case, it wasn't valuable except that it represented the depth of her love and her commitment. And so she's sweeping the house looking for that coin, that thing that she had lost. She turns on all the lights and she sweeps through the home and when she finds it, she rejoices and This is a wonderful portrait of the work of the Holy Spirit who turns on the light of conscience within us and sweeps over us His convicting work, sifting through our lives, demonstrating to us our sin and our lack of righteousness and even cultivating within us through that searchlight of His presence a fear of judgment in order that we might turn and believe and trust the salvation that God would have us in order that we may be restored to the Father. So it's an image and a picture of the searching and seeking of the Spirit, the joy the Spirit has in us being found. And then obviously the last story is the story of the prodigal son who's in rebellion, fled from his home, and his 
his departure and separation and consequences created a kind of spiritual death in his life. The father refers to his condition once he returned, saying he was dead. Sin separates us from God, and this separation is in consequence spiritual death to us. But the father in the story longs for the son's return, and when he does return, the father pours out blessing upon his son and rejoices that who is lost is found, and he who is dead has been made alive. Calls everybody in this household to rejoice and celebrate. It's the good news of the Son of God, the shepherd. It's good news to God, the Spirit, the the woman sweeping her house for the lost coin. It's good news for God, the Father Almighty, lovingly waiting for the return of a lost son. In each case, the shepherd rejoices, the woman rejoices, the father rejoices. What is Jesus saying? God, the triune God, rejoices in your salvation. It's His good news because it's good news to Him. He's found a way to restore unto himself the lost treasure of our fellowship with him. And he's found a way to pour out upon us the treasures of all of his goodness unendingly so they don't be enjoyed by us. And this is good news to God. You might think that the good news is mostly good news because it's been good for you. That's how you've added it up. In fact, oftentimes that's how it's always presented to us. Just good news for yourself. Escape from judgment, get to go to heaven, maybe get some benefits on the way, good fellowship, some nice songs to sing when you go to church, and good news, your best life now. No, that's not the supreme expression of the goodness of the good news. That's not the high point of the good news, not what it's done for you, although that's wonderful, wonderful. It's good news, ultimately, the greatest portrait and expression of the breadth of the good news is that it's It's good to God. It's God's gospel. It's His goodness. It highlights all that He is. It's in keeping with all of His nature, not compromised in any way. It's it's good because it reveals the deep, profound desire of God to pour out His benefit and blessing upon us. It's good to Him because it restores us to Himself. I think to myself of A father who might have a child who's wandered off into rebellion and maybe that rebellion has taken hold of them and they're in such bondage and the the child doesn't even know the precarious state that they're in. They've been gone for a long time and the father has scoured papers looking for them and put up posters looking for them and broadcast through the news media and tried to find people searching for this child that's been wandered away and because of the rebellion they've been caught up in a syndicate of sin and they're bound within it but some way they get some weak message out of where they're located. They want to go back home and the father finds them and The child is relieved to be found, but they're still in an adult state because of their sin. But the father is deliriously happy. He knows what he's rescuing them from, even when they don't. And he knows what he's been storing up and keeping for them back home, even when they're not clear enough in their mind to realize it. Good news to the father above everything else. This is good news to God. Paul calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Not simply because we bless him, but because he's blessed by the gospel he brings to us. This is, by the way, the highest and purest motivation that can come to us if we're to move to the gospel and if we're to proclaim that gospel to others. 
The highest motivation to move to it is because it's good to God. It's good for God. The greatest reason to proclaim it to others is because it's good news to them. Yes, it's good news to God. He wants them to hear it. He wants them to know it. It's his good news. For this reason, we serve him. For this reason, we come, not simply for ourselves, but to satisfy the heart of one who loved us so much as to provide this good news to us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. At the threshold of something great and grand and glorious that we've yet to comprehend and so used to speaking about this word gospel and good news that we forget how truly good it is. We forget to delight in it for what it has brought to us, what it has opened up for our lives. We forget to delight in it for what it has delivered us from and where our lives would be and the trajectory of our lives without it. We forget to glory in it for what it means to you. Oh, good God. What it means to you. So profoundly and wonderfully glorious in all that you do, even in this great work of salvation, so wonderfully expressive of the depth of your being that throughout all eternity we will rejoice and glory in this salvation. And we shall form our worship of you around this great gospel. Good news. Help us to understand it and know it. Knowing it and comprehending it, oh God, bind our hearts to you as never before. May we begin to demonstrate a grasp of these things in the middle of the day, in the hour in which you find us, by responding with hearts full of gladness, rejoicing, satisfied, and content in you. Lord, how silly when we project our joy and our satisfaction and our well-being out upon temporal things when you have offered us this eternal good news. Here, bring us here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.